I like that, that performance. That was very good. What I'm going to talk about is really a bit different. Um, it starts with kind of savagery. Ah, and the academic in me couldn't resist. So if you need more sources, there they are. That's just some of them. You can see where we're going here, right? This is no play. Uh, though I am a, actually very playful. Uh, my colleagues sometimes complain. Um, so here, here is the framing. I think that complex systems, and we live in complex systems, are very interesting how they change radically. It's not visible. It's not like, you know, the little tomato is there or whatever, some of the nice things that they were showing, and then there it is in a very different shape or dead or alive, whatever, big or smaller. No. It's often invisible. So I want to make an argument, it's a rather forceful argument, that beginning in the 1980s, in much of the West, the West very broadly understood, that includes parts of Africa, parts of Asia, etc., etc., certainly we, the Western countries, um, beginning in the 1980s, a very deep transformation happened. But the way complex systems change is, as I said, invisible. Often it just means shifting capabilities of a certain kind from time one to time two with a deeply transformative effect that is not visible. One framing I want to give you is this notion that beginning in the 1980s, but it's certainly, especially in the last 10 or 20 years, what dominates are extractive logics. So it's not just mining. Google. Let's think how Google made its first billion. Pache, the great platform, huh? or Facebook is the same thing, great platforms. Once they had that platform, how did they make their first billion? They got information about all of us for zero cost and sold it to all kinds of firms for a lot of money. Zero accountability. Think of a car manufacturer. Something goes wrong in the tapestry, not even the motor, and they have to call back all those cars. So to me, Google, Facebook, they are extractive. They just don't look like that, because when we think extractive, we think mining and that kind of digging. No. When we begin to look at what is happening, also this question of inequality, you know, 40% of people are richer than they ever thought they would be, and the rest are poorer than they ever thought they would be, or are losing ground, or their children are losing ground. You know, we don't think of the Googles and the Facebooks and that kind of sector. Now, I want to focus particularly on finance, on high finance. And I think finance is the ultimate extractive sector. Because finance sells something it does not have. And in selling what it does not have, it means it's extracting. The traditional bank is commerce. It sells something it has, money, and we all need it. But when you deal with a sector like finance, you really get an extraordinary complexity, algorithmic mathematics, nothing to do with microeconomics or macroeconomics, nothing, that's like kindergarten stuff. Today, when you walk 
into one of these big financial firms. I'm now thinking Manhattan because that's where I live. Let's say Goldman Sachs. I'm sure you all heard of Goldman Sachs or anybody didn't hear of them? Well, they are serious stuff. Anyhow, when you walk in, there is a space that is called the back room. That's where the secretaries used to sit. Today, a hundred physicists. Now, I don't blame the physicists, but they are develop the, developing these extraordinarily complex instruments. Now, I'm going to start with, uh, with something that I love this. Now, you have to, uh, you know, I, I, you have to accept that I am an academic. It really is, is an issue. So, <clears throat> most serious social scientists are in the zone of method. Given the transformations that I'm talking about, I think just being in that standard zone of method won't do. So I want to step back. I want to be in a zone that I call before method. Now, I want to make a footnote. There are famous books, at least two that I know about, that have been written that are called after method. So I really like this notion of before method. Before method is a place where I can do what I want, what I think should be done, what I would like to do, etc., etc. Eventually, I step back into the zone of method because it disciplines me, etc. But I come with the knowledge, with the discoveries of what I could see in that zone before method. Now, one way of putting it, for those of you who might be interested in the whole notion of the paradigm, etc., is that where I am, where I do my research, where I am enjoying myself, is the fuzzy edges of the paradigm. The heart of the paradigm remains strong, though it explains less and less. I'm talking especially about the social sciences, which includes economics, which includes, you know, all the social sciences, etc. Another uh, item here, analytic tactics, sort of a tactical analytics. You keep repositioning yourself vis-a-vis -vis whatever the question you have. And my question is, how do I explain the, our contemporary period, which is marked by this extraordinary concentration of wealth and power, and at the same time, so many losses? Now, here are some of these analytic tactics. The need to actively destabilize stable meanings. What does it mean to say the economy, the middle classes, and there is a very long list of such terms. They are profoundly unstable meanings. The middle classes used to be truly in the middle. Today they have split into two. There's still big middle class, but some are very rich, as I said, and others are getting poorer. So, and what, what is the nation, the national economy, the state? These are unstable meanings. We need to interrogate them. We can't just say, oh, the state. No, it's not enough. Now, I come from a country which, <clears throat> the United States, which has a certain kind of state, which is truly a problem, but we won't go there. Um, now, secondly, in the shadow of powerful explanations. A powerful explanation is something beautiful and to be taken seriously. I'm interested in seeing what happens in the penumbra around that powerful explanation. One image that one can use is dark street at night, very strong light, circle of light, 
the stronger that light, i.e. the stronger the explanation, the less you can see what is happening around it, in the penumbra around that circle of light. So again, these are modes of seeing, modes of practicing. And I must say, I do, I do work with, with artists, etc., and, and they find this very also intriguing, you know, to how do you visualize some of this stuff. <clears throat> now, I'm just not going to go through everything. Expulsions. I think that that what we are seeing in our societies today are inside our countries or whatever unit you want to think of, but sort of a conventional version of a unit, uh, is something that contains inside of it systemic edges. So it's not just the borders of a country. It's not just immigrants trying to cross the border of a country. I'm talking you're inside, like us. We, the citizens of a country. And, um, and I think more and more of us, not necessarily we who are here, but you know, sort of the members of the society, are actually being expelled. And in their full materiality, all those bodies, I'll give you some examples. Once they cross those systemic edges, they're invisible. Because remember, we don't, we don't simply see everything. We are profoundly theoretical beings, or we would go crazy. So we see only certain things. And I'm going to give you several examples of enormous materialities, including the fact that in the United States, in a period of about six to seven years, 14.5 million households, which could be about 30 million people, 40 million people, lost their homes. Enormous numbers of people out, 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 invisible. We can't see that. We simply cannot see 30 million people. I'm Dutch, my country is, you know, 16 million. 30 million? It's like some voice above the Netherlands would say, okay, all of you on the territory of the Netherlands, out. And where you go, I don't know, but out. And now we're going to repeat it. So I have become sort of almost obsessed with this notion of the invisibility of the material. And I'll, again, I'll give you a few examples. Now, final point here, the making of it all. The making of it all, I'm not thinking here of the maker's movement, but I'm thinking of the notion of making. That stuff doesn't fall from the sky ready-made. So Trump, you've heard of him? <laughs> Trump doesn't fall from the sky ready-made. Trump is the outcome of a history of 20 or 30 years in the United States. I'm really sick of people simply saying, oh, Trump, Trump. No, we were in trouble long before Trump appeared. Trump is just the extreme version. So this notion of that stuff gets made. Now, we make, we made this. We managed to destroy, with very simple elements, one of the biggest internal seas, the ROC, in about 20 years. That's amazing. I mean, it's pity that it is so bad, but I want to capture the notion that we made that with simple instruments. It is not like putting in a planetary, interplanetary you know, station in, in, in space there. No, 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 very simple. This is even more impressive. A billion years of ice cover destroyed in 20 years, just like that. We must take these things into account. Who are we? 
If we can make that kind of stuff on the negative vector with simple instruments, what could we do on the positive vector with simple instruments? Now, I'm right now, my, my, my son is a crazy, sort of rather brilliant, but crazy. So we are, <laughs> one feels that about one's sons and daughters. Uh, so we are working on something that we call a bit ironically colonizing, which is in sort of a negatively charged term, the scalar niche. In other words, how do we scale up and then, of course, on the positive vector. So, so uh, he hears me give these talks, you know, and then he says, you're actually talking about a very simple DNA, a simple key code. What could we do with simple key codes, you know, that goes in a positive? In other words, we don't have to be physicists, we don't have to be, it's a, these are other realms, there are multiple realms, and there is one realm where we could do an extraordinary amount of stuff. So for instance, I'm now obsessing about all the bacteria and the algae, etc. that if we could deploy them, every surface in the city should be working with a biosphere. No building can just be a building. Every building is also a source of positive, you know, uh, conditions, like the tree buildings, as they call them now. Uh, now, let's sort of frame our epoch, and we could just ask, what is the steam engine of our epoch? Now, the steam engine was, as you know, a very significant element, but it did not change everything. It changed just enough to make a big difference. So this is very important. Again, back to this notion, how do complex systems change? They do not change by changing everything. And that is why often these processes of profound transformation are so invisible. Now, one way of putting it is that which can make a new ordering. In other words, not change everything, but make a new ordering. That which can mark what is in and what is out. Now, mostly people, when I let them answer, I'm not letting you answer, okay? They say, uh, they say the digital revolution. In my view, if I were here 20 years ago, and some of you were then not born, one could say, yes. Today, I think the digital is infrastructural, which means necessary but indeterminate. The question is, how is it used? So, to me, the digital is very, very present, very significant, but again, infrastructural. And by infrastructure, think of the, the tracks of trains, that's an infrastructure. Well, they could carry bombs or they could carry food for poor children. So, you know, a kind of indeterminacy. The question vis-a-vis -vis the digital is, how is it getting used, not what is it? Uh, so, for me, this steam engine of our epoch is high finance. Now, I have to clarify that, as I said already, high finance is radically different from, uh, from the traditional bank. And let me give you an example. Student debt, and I think probably some of you are students, you know what student debt can be like. Uh, student debt in the United States has now reached a trillion dollars. The traditional bank does not know what to do. So that's a trillion, right? It's a trillion in debt. It's a negative. Finance, a trillion dollars. I can work with that, no matter whether it's positive or negative. Secondly, 
They succeeded in passing a law through Congress. This is the US. Your country is much better. They wouldn't do this here. A law that says that students can never be pardoned of that debt. I mean, some will pay that debt, but they cannot be pardoned, as we often do with other kinds of debts. Why? Because they have a trillion guaranteed for a rather long period of time. We can work with that. Now, this already gives you an indication that when we talk high finance, we talk about something very, very peculiar. Uh, now, look at this growth curve. Hey, the professor in me is appearing here. So look at this. This is a period of six years. It went from less than a trillion, right, to 62 trillion in six years. That is a very high, do you understand what I'm saying? From one to 62 trillion? So uh, again, I interrogate, you know, what else does that? Couldn't find anything, and I really spent time. I could give you all the details, but I won't do that. Now, 62 trillion at that time, 207. You know what a trillion is, right? That's a lot of zeros, but they're all working. <laughs> they're all on the right side. Now, those 62 trillion, at that point, and this is just one little part of high finance, was more than the global GDP of all the countries in the world. 62 trillion was about 10%. The value of finance at that point was more like 600 trillion. Today, the value of high finance, as measured by outstanding derivatives, which is the basic measure, in other words, what I'm trying to say here is there is a basic measure, is a quadrillion. And those zeros are all working. So you have a, a billion, you have a million, a billion, a trillion, a quadrillion. Mm. Global GDP of all the countries in the world, and yes, we have some very poor countries, but we also have some very rich countries, is, um, is right now about 200 trillion. So when we speak about finance, we are not speaking about money. It just doesn't work that way. Now, very quickly, I see my clock is racing. Ah, this is another datum that I think is important to know. So this, this is data from the Central Bank of the US, but it also has data in Europe. According to the central, to the banker, the key banker in, in, in the United States, uh, most trading you know, financial trading, it's not happening in the stock market. The stock market is a public space. You don't necessarily have access to it, but it is a public space. It's, there is a kind of visibility that attaches to it. He, according to Bernanke, the, the central banker, he said up to 70% of financial trading in the United States is happening in privately owned networks by banks, there are quite a few, there are long lines of waiting lines of fancy banks that want to enter these networks. And this is also in Europe, as you can see here. I hope you can see that. And um, the borders of those networks are stronger than any border. No coyote, you know what a coyote is, what we call a coyote? No people trader, so to speak, can get you over those borders. Those are the tightest borders that you can imagine. So, the story of finance plays out at many different levels, and it's not, most of it is not really visible. Now, 
I want to very quickly give you an example of how finance functions. I want to give you two examples. Um, so this is, a, uh, this is a situation that emerges, you know, in the 2000s. The high-level investors, they are very smart. They tell finance, the financial system, look, enough of derivatives based on derivatives, based on der a derivative derives its value from something else, but they make these long chains of derivatives. You don't know, well, what was it again that is over there that has the value? You know, it sort of becomes a fiction a bit. Uh, Marx was already talking about that kind of stuff, actually. Uh, Karl, Karl Marx, I was mentioning here. Uh, <laughs> so, and they said, give me an asset backed security. An asset is something, you know, that sort of material. What did they do? They said, okay, what is it? Most stuff is finance, most fancy buildings, printed in, in a place like New York, etc., in London. I don't know about Frankfurt, but a bit of that too, probably. Uh, actually operates on two levels. One is the building, and the other one is that it can be bold salt, bold salt in the financial circuit, you know. So, so, um, so what happened here is that they used the image of the mortgage, a home mortgage. You know what that is, right? Una hipoteca. Hmm? Not that that helps you here, but anyhow, in Malmo, but <laughs> just giving it a try. Um, and so they used that, and it looks like a mortgage. So they got 16 million households, which could be 30 million people and more, to actually say, yeah, yeah, I want to own a house. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice, good idea, good, good. Uh, but what it really was is all those little houses, because it was mostly very modest people, because most rich people own their house already. It was like putting it in a big field. So you had the windows, the toilets, the walls, the floors, the seat, whatever. And you extract a bit of materiality to produce a financial instrument that is an asset-backed security, which the high investment circuit wanted. This was an absolute abuse of those modest households who were told, you son, you don't have to give anything. Every week, like 700 contracts had to be signed by these people. You know, you had a whole deployment of people going, sign, sign, sign. I mean, this is a catastrophic story. Now, that instrument is also in Europe. Well, here are all these figures. Germany is among the highest, by the way. Sweet, I, I see Denmark. Yeah, I don't have all of them here. By the way, and it goes on, huh? it goes on. So in, in Germany right now, you have over a million of these households. So these are the kinds of things that finance does. That is why finance is so radically different from traditional banking. Now, I'm going to move on to, this is a very, can people see this very clearly or not? Okay, so here I just want to invite you to dwell in the little zone of this, which looks rather boring, admittedly, but I think it's interesting now, I, I you know, why, what that means, I don't know. Anyhow, the look at the title, bear with me, okay? Ratio of household credit to personal disposable income. Credit sounds good. Credit is debt. They don't call it debt, they call it credit. In other words, you can spend, but then you get to pay. Now look at the years, 2000 to 2005, look at Hungary. 
That's a very critical period in these Eastern European countries as they enter the Western mode. The household debt, ratio of household debt, Hungary, in 2000, 11% of disposable income. The United States was already over 100. Five years later, it's almost 40%. You understand that that's not good, right? Who knows all the tchotchkes they wound up buying that they didn't need. Uh, and of course, look at this other country, Germany. Look at that stability. I don't know how they do it. 70, 70, 70, 70. That is Madame Merkel, hey? It's sort of enacted through the, I mean, it's just incredible. The United States, of course, kept going. You know, you have a whole series of other things there. Now, when I see that kind of stuff, so the, look at that household debt. Somebody was selling them. Yeah, you just sign and you're fine. So I want to know who owns that debt. If that debt is owned by a local bank, here is a sort of a bit of a fantasy, but it is a possibility. Let's say, okay, so they make all that money off that, you know, household debt, etc. They can hire a new person, a new worker. So there's at least a bit of something that recirculates in that community. I don't know if that example was clear. So I checked out. By the way, I, these are all data from the IMF staff papers. That is unpublished data. We own those data. They don't tell us that. But we, the citizens of the world, finance the IMF. I am always amazed how few people, any of you, can go access these data. This is in the public domain. But, you know, so, you know, if you're interested, you should give it a try. So I ask, who, back to the story of Hungary, who owns that household, are we talking modest household debt? Well, Hungary, 40% was owned by foreign banks. That's not good. The foreign bank basically takes the interest and takes it to its whatevers. Nothing recirculates in that neighborhood. Now, when you multiply and multiply and multiply this, you can see why we wind up. And that is why I use this notion of extractive logics. Why we wind up with impoverished neighborhoods, impoverished middle classes for a while, Everything was getting better, 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 and now we have a very, and, and that story starts really in the 1980s. Now, as it happens, those, those, uh, the banks, there were three major sets of banks, German, Austrian, and Swiss. I don't know why the Hungarian debt wound up with the Germanic banks, but you know, you find all these sort of interesting. Now, in short, one thing that I want to sort of wind up with is extractive sectors can extract even from modest households. So the student debt that I started with is a good example. Now, very quickly, I wanted to get at this thing of, this is a project that I'm doing that I call Who Owns the City? Now, nobody owns the city necessarily, but I'm looking at the buying of property. Some of you must have heard about this, right? This extraordinary amount of buying of properties that are then often sitting there empty. So here is just, I'm looking at 100 cities, clearly this is only 10, huh? uh, and New York, London, etc. you can see that. Those are growth rates. The negatives mean simply that there is less growth onto the from the prior year. And if you look at foreign, you see London is number one, foreign buyers. Now, there are so many little sort of interesting vignettes in this whole 
this particular story. So for instance, in London, the Qatari royals own more of central London than the Queen of England. I sort of like that one, you know. But uh, really, when you begin to look at the stuff. Now also, I find a very interesting Amsterdam, you know, look at that rate of increase from the prior year, 248%. I don't know what they're buying. There isn't that much to buy, you know, in, in Amsterdam. But, but, you know, you go down the list and you run into all these kinds of things. Then the, the other thing, what does this all look like? Again, back to the material. So I had with a, with a German uh, journalist from the Zeit asked me to walk with him. This is the center of London. This is where a lot of this buying is happening. This is a place where I really never go. It's full of tourists. And so these are all these nice British, except for this one here, really ugly, you know, the, but, the, but anyhow, very, a lot of very beautiful, older British, blah, blahs. And so I heard the tourists say, oh, this is so lovely, this British, blah, yeah, the British, and the, well, they are all owned, all of those buildings are owned by one Chinese company. I love that. So it's not visible. You see what I mean? That when you're dealing with complex intermediations, all kinds of stuff that used to be, okay, this is what, it, what I'm seeing with my eyes. No, not anymore. I want to um, give you these figures. The top 100 cities that I'm looking at account for 10% of the world's population, 30% of the world's GDP, 76% of property investment. That property investment figure is how it's getting bought and sold in that circuit up there. And according to Seville's, they know their stuff, worldwide buying of this kind of building that then can also be financialized is 217 trillion. That is more than global GDP. So that raises in my mind the question, who owns the city? Singapore, very well-run country, has bought two years ago a huge part of very poor Detroit. You know Detroit? No announcement, no nothing. Just waiting till the last poor, and nothing against Singapore, huh? just waiting till the last poor black, mostly black families still don't get a job and leave in despair. And then my question is, what am I going to see then? Well, probably a very fancy corporate center. So there is a kind of brutality and complexity in all of this that is quite extraordinary. I wanted to just give you a few more examples. So, this is, it's not very visible here, this is 65,000 buildings. <laughs> We're talking big buildings, not little cute, huh? Big. In London, that are all owned by offshore, in other words, they are not in London, uh, companies that nobody knows, they're calling shell companies, nobody knows who actually owns it. That's quite impressive, you know? What is happening? We really have to confront some of these figures. Now, this is a slightly different story. These are new buildings in, in New York, in Manhattan. Very, very fancy. Most of the units are empty, and most are owned by shell companies. Now, we all know that a lot of money is getting cleansed that way. But I think that there is also something else, possibly. And here are other examples. You know, there are a lot of these. And um, so that means, and so, so one, one thing that I want to clarify before I forget it, 
is that people think, oh my God, those who bought those buildings are going broke because they are unused, they're underbought. Nope, because that building operates probably in at least two circuits, if not three. One is the building. So you're buying a building, selling a building, that's a huge deal. Second is you commodify the building. And then you can buy, sell, buy, sell. Third is you actually financialize it. You make it an asset for an asset-backed security. So those images that I showed you, they may be with us for quite a while because there is a whole other way in which you make those buildings deliver a profit. Much faster, much it's totally speculative, of course, eh? because what are they doing, actually? But do you understand what I'm saying, right? So the, in the past, you saw an empty building, you said, oh my god, the owner is suffering. Not now. So there is a, this added abuse, I find, of, of, in this case, urban space, and the abuse of one's intelligence. You cannot understand what is happening. I wanted to end, oh, so th these are sort of, for me, two formats of the future. I don't know if you can see them well. It's actually a stunning image. So this is La Periferia, as we say in Latin America, a lot of mixed housing. Can you see this well or not? And then up there, this vast concentration of buildings. Now there is no place, both are real, but there is no place in the world where you can stand or sit and see this. You understand? I don't want to... to uh, but both are real. It's just an artist, just put them together. You, you understand what I'm saying? But that is also, for me, a kind of format of the future, because all those empty buildings, they are working very hard, making money. So more and more people are actually displaced. And if there is no land, we're building our shanties on water. And this is, of course, also a growing phenomenon. Now, I want to end with uh, two things. One is this, why does all of this matter? And I think for me, the city is a place where those without power get to make a history, get to make an economy, a local economy, get to make a culture, you know, subcultures, whatever. And, and, and further, if I think, where's the frontier today? The frontier which in our imperial mode, we in the West, our imperial mode, was at the edges of empire. The, the frontier is a space where actors from different worlds have an encounter for which there are no established rules of engagement. In our colonial past, we killed them, basically, or we enslaved them, or whatever. Today, that frontier no longer exists because it's all owned. The Nestle's and Coca-Cola's have bought a lot of land to get water, the expansion of mining, the building of cities, the, new, the, the return of plantation economies. There are about 30 countries in the world that are buying, buying land, land. They basically own. They own, they own, they own, not in their own country. Saudi Arabia, for instance, has told the poor farmers of Bosnia, that was a poor country, okay, you're now going to retire. They give them a lot of money, and that was poor farming. Bosnia, yeah? And they're all out of the country. Not all of them, but any significant numbers. And now it's wheat one of the most expensive crops. So the frontier, that space where actors from different worlds have an encounter for which there are no established rules of engagement today, 
is not out in the fields or in the, it's inside our cities. And that makes it interesting, because that means that those without power can actually stand up in a city. It's different from a plantation or from a mine. They can stand up and say, and I, here I'm using this image of Latin America, estamos presentes. Power, we're telling you, we're here. This is also our place, our city, etc. And so in that sense, this stuff, this buying up of pieces of the city, in, I'm talking about big cities, huh? uh, is very problematic because it robs that possibility. You know, you have all these empty, I don't know if anybody has been in Manhattan at night, and you see all these empty buildings. That is not good. Um, now, I'm just going to go through all the amazingly interesting stuff. <laughs> so, unstable meanings. Who are we, the citizens, today? Uh, and I want to, how many of you have seen this map? This is part of the, this is the United States. Anyhow, this map shows you 10,000 buildings plus. They just finished a huge one in Iowa, somewhere there in the west of the US, that is full-time gathering data about all of us. If your grandma was there having a cup of coffee in Iowa or in New York, she's in the data. Now, thanks to, so this to me is already a very significant thing. We're, we're all in there. We're so many that I don't know what they're going to do with it. They messed themselves up, basically. I, it doesn't give me anxiety. I just stand and marvel. And in, in Washington, D.C., you have a huge concentration of buildings just gathering data. Now, thanks to Jody Vinyan and hmm, Snowden, blah, blah, now in the public domain, so I'm not putting anything here that is not in the public domain. So these are some of the things that, that they can do. And some of it is pure nonsense. So for instance, I like this one. Uh, it can hack, you know, these are these, you know, it can hack into the UN video conferencing system. Wow, they could really get some secret information that way, right? I mean, and so I just leave you with this image. More, all, sorry, more. It can link and tap into the links between Google and Yahoo data. Now, this business costs billions of dollars to get this, these systems. And it goes on. It can post false information on the internet in order to hurt the reputation of targets. I mean, do you need this kind of apparatus to do that? You know, they were doing that in the Middle Ages already, that, the equivalent. And of course, now you know that you have it too in Europe. I leave you with that unhappy thought. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Saskia. That was amazing. <laughs> I love this. Thank you so much. So, I will just tell you right now that we're gonna, I'm going to let you go at no later than five minutes to six but I think it's worth it to put a little time in a Q&A. Uh, I have to say that everybody has been listening with such focus that they haven't written a lot of questions yet. I have a million. 
Uh, but uh, there is one right here, just a moment. Uh, so Marcus Horning would like to know the following. Is the power of the financial sector a parameter which pro-urbanists have failed to include in the analysis? Yes, they have. Because, I mean, urbanism, I mean, now there is a whole new crop of urbanists who are far more sophisticated and looking at all these different vectors that come together in a city. But in a way, urbanists have just looked at planning stuff and housing and not looked at the powerful domains that also shape our cities. So it's a very important question and we need to, uh, you know, I, I really am not strictly speaking an urbanist. I'm married to an urbanist, so I know that I'm not really one. My husband is Richard Sennett, who really knows the stuff on cities. I'm a bit ignorant. Um, but the truth of the matter is that everybody who is focusing on the city should actually begin to look at these vectors, you know, that are shaping and reshaping all that buying of property, all those anti... That is really reshaping our cities. So my first question is, did you... To just clarify a little bit about the IMF data that we all own, but that wasn't actually published, did you steal it? No, no, it's access, you just have to go. So what is published is, operates in one circuit. I mean, they, they will bombard you with all kinds of stuff. What is the IMF staff papers, you have to request them. Mm. But we are entitled to access that information. They may also produce information that is top secret, you know, for a particular government or whatever but that eventually might come in the public domain. But there is a vast amount of those data that I was showing you, they're all in the public domain. And most people don't know that, you know, which is to me an irritant. And that holds probably for other domains as well, that we actually have standing vis-a-vis -vis all kinds of data sets. By standing, I mean that we can stand there and make a claim. Huh? Yeah. So this is going to sound like a to a completely stupid question, but it's a pretty recent idea to me that there's a difference between like basic capitalism that works around like stuff that actually, like actual production yeah. and actual <laughs> value, you know, which has its problems also as we've right. known for some hundreds of years. And then we have this whole other layer yeah. of trouble <laughs> on top of it, which is sort of finance, that extreme capitalism, yeah. uh, which is also basically unregulated and, and you, which you have illustrated so, so well. And I'm sorry if this is a very naive question, but does the finance world all of those trillions that are completely unconnected to the world's GDPs, does it produce anything of value? Could we just, like, <laughs> if we got rid of it, would we break something except some, like, really rich people's, you know, lifestyles? Right. Well, I always say, you know, if we could, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how do we do that. So when you create these extraordinary values, like a quadrillion, if we could just pull it down and materialize it into a transport system, into a healthcare, into cleaning up poisoned, you know, waters or whatever. But we have not done that yet. Now, the other thing but, is... But, like, is it actual value? Like, could you... Well, you have to materialize it, it yeah. you see? Because a lot of it is just circulating, circulating. It's good, good, good. You buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. Everybody makes a bit of money. And speculation but, on each other's But trades. if that is why this notion of materializing it, you know? So what is it? So we have this much capital in the central bank of a country. Let's materialize it, you know? Let's pull it out, but that means that you need political classes who are knowledgeable, and right now the political classes in the United States, I don't know about your countries, oh, here as well. they delegate, they say, oh, this is so complex, finance, the, the whole new sort of digital thing, oh, so complex, we leave it to the experts. Who are the experts for, for the politicians? 
the sectors themselves, so the Googles and the, and the Goldman Sachs. That is just a joke. You know? But really, I, I, I keep trying to think, when I think about all the, all the good things that we could do if we materialized those trillions, <laughs> you know, just a few billions actually would also help, <laughs> let, let alone quadrillions. But how do we do that? Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do we do that? Well, I think that the Chinese have been, have, the, the Chinese model enables that just a bit more because they're still obsessing with the material. Like, the, I don't know if people hope they have this new, what do they call it, road and shovel, whatever. It's a huge program that, uh, nobody heard of that? It's a very funny title. It's sort of, and the, you, you sort of recover the material in there. And, and that can be, I mean, the material is a variable. You know, you can also just build more luxury whatevers. Mm -hmm. But you could also do a lot of good stuff. Yes, uh, I'm a little bit worried about the complexity. So every time I'm asking a question, yeah. I'm looking at the time. But but okay. So we, you were talking about these levels. We have the building, and it's operating as a building. So let's say that we can call right. that the life level. Like people might live there or work yeah. there or something like or that. Or empty. Or empty, sure. But like hypothetically, at least, yeah. it's connected to, yeah. to something that we know. Right. And then it operates as a commodity that you can trade, like we can buy a home right. or sell a home. And then you have this whole assetization thing. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to sound like an insane anti-capitalist because I'm not like a 16 years old anymore. But again, w could we roll back? Would it be possible to roll back the understanding of the building to somehow tie the, the, the invisible trade yeah. to the physical building or make yeah. it visible somehow as, yeah. you, as you have? Yeah. Because, I, I mean, these are snapshots, right? The, right, 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 right. Of somebody who is owning a building in London yeah. at a specific moment. Yeah. But they are also yeah. moving through time somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is it possible today to visualize this so that we can act on it? Well, so, so the, yeah, look, the Panama Papers, you've heard of that? Yes. You know? Well, that way we, just, we got a lot of information that way. So we, now we have the information. That does not necessarily mean that we have developed the tools that allow our project to be executed, whereas finance has known how to do that. Now, let me give you a very simple example. When the crisis hit in 2008, in the, in, the, in, the, in the legislature, which is where we, the citizens, have our strongest standing huh, in our democracies. We don't have it with, a, with, a, with, the, with a, um, the executive branch or with the judiciary. We have it with the legislators. So our legislators had a great debate. Should we or should we not give, pay attention, 300 billion to the banks to help the poor thingies huh, after they had messed up us and themselves? In the meantime, we found out through Bloomberg News, Freedom of Information Act, I already had my nose on that too, that the bank, our central bank, secretly gave the global high finance system that included German banks, etc., seven trillion dollars, secretly. It took two years and a half for our central bank to put out that information. The information comes out, the Financial Times, one of the best newspapers, has a front page with all the details. But that was two years and a half after that famous debate. And it shows 21,000 plus requests. Oh yeah, I'll take your cheap money. You know what we call quantitative easing? No. Have you heard of that? You're doing it now in Europe, by the way. Okay, very briefly. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. <laughs> I know I'm... I'm going in the wrong zone there. Okay. Maybe we'll drop the quantitative easing yeah, out of yeah, complexity. Yeah, we, we yeah. That. So, okay, this is not a trivial problem, <laughs> but I am very pleased to see it. I said something this morning as a sort of almost 
that it sounded so inane, I was worried that maybe I shouldn't even say it, that if our lives and, and careers can contribute to global problems, they might just as easily contribute to global solutions. And easily is maybe not the word, <laughs> but I'm very happy to see that you made in a much more qualified way the same point today, because this is hopeful to me. There are yeah. things that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the two things, one that I just mentioned, the money, you know, so there is all of that. Let's bring it down. Let's materialize it. Let's find the way. And the other one is using simple key codes, simple DNAs, simple formulas to do good things rather than the bad things that we have done. We, we the average actor in our societies, you know, where I started mm. with. You're right. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Saskia Samson, everyone. Bravo.